I will be reading our passage today. It's 1 John 3, 19 through 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. So thankful for the uh, pastors we have here, hearing from them when uh, they come up on the schedule. Thankful for Pastor Ryan's sermon last week, and it seems certainly appropriate and fitting to follow up his introduction last week with another song. This will not be a, a rock and roll song. That's not, I'm not the pastor of rock and roll. I can't do that. But I wonder if you guys have heard uh, an old hymn called Blessed Assurance. It's a Fanny Crosby hymn we used to sing as I was growing up. If you're familiar, if you've grown up in church, likely you've been exposed to this, this song. I won't sing it for you. Also, I'm not, uh, not the pastor of, of singing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Assurance is, is proposed, and I think rightly so, as this, this divine foretaste. Uh, this put out before us as something that's so grand and great that we can have this blessed assurance, this foretaste of what's to come, a foretaste of glory divine. And I think assurance is that. There's this uh, Puritan uh, writer who wrote Heaven on Earth, and the book Heaven on Earth is about assurance. It's the, the entire book is about assurance because he would propose for us that, that assurance is heaven on earth. Now, the, the song that... that Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Certain, certainly gives us the sure and certain assurance. This is my story, it says. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And it's at that point when my, my assurance begins to get put on shaky soil. <laughs> who, who goes to that song and says, I'm praising my Savior all the day long, and that's my life, period. Or maybe you praise the Savior like a couple minutes and then live kind of your life. And so even though this song is putting forth this certain assurance, it seems to put my assurance for my life on a little bit of shaky soil. And it continues with this. This is, this is verse 2. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Whoa. John actually said something about that earlier. He said, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. So maybe this song is maybe rewritten. I don't know. Perfect submission, perfect delight seems to not compute with our lives. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Is that, again, does this explain your, your everyday life? You get whispers of love all day? Verse 3, not giving up on this. Perfect submission is how it starts. Again, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness lost in his love. 
And here we have this song of blessed assurance that seems to contrast with our, our everyday lives. In, in a sense, I think that while we're trying to put forward in the song that there is blessed assurance, it's a foretaste of, of glory that it makes assurance seem a little bit of elusive because it doesn't match with our everyday experience. And perhaps as we've thought about love in the last couple weeks in, in 1 John chapter 3, the same kind of thing has happened. John started in, in chapter 3, he started uh, describing the love of God that's for the children of God, and, and he's gone through many of this, this chunk of this, this chapter has been about love and love for others. And his love that he points to, the love that we ought to have for one another, he, he points to not only as just command, but as evidence that someone is in Christ, that someone belongs to the family of God, that one is a child of God. One of the evidences, and the clearest evidences of that, is your love for one another. And the, the fruit of that love that you have for one another, John is pointing to as, as assurance. He, he points to love in verses 11 through 18 that we've covered the last couple of weeks and, and says, this should show you, this should be evidence before you that you are part of the family of God, that you're children. But I wonder, when we went through verses 11 through 18, did you get more assurance? Verses 11 through 18 are, are hard. And I think John knows that. And so here in verses 19 through 24, as John wraps up this section that started in verse 11 and even this chapter in chapter 3, John pours the assurance on starting in verse 19. He points then to the fruit of assurance as well. And the fruit of assurance that he points to in this passage, 19 through 24, is the fruit of, of asking and the fruit of obeying. Now again, after explaining what love for one another should not be like, it shouldn't be like Cain-like love, verses 11 through uh, 15, and he's showing what it should be like and what love does, verses 16 through 18, looks like Jesus, it looks like laying down life as he laid down his life. If you have that kind of love, it should lead to assurance. Verse 19, he says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. And I think that the by this is pointing backwards. Pointing to all this love that we're supposed to have for one another, that not the love like Cain, but the love like Jesus, by that kind of love that we show for one another, that we have for one another, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and we are sure our hearts before him. So following the command to love one another is one of the clearest evidences that one is of the truth, that one is born of God, a child of God. And this evidence of obedience displayed in one's life, John intends to be for our own assurance before God because the love that we have for one another is love that only comes from God that then can move out towards others. But this seems to be, again, shaky ground for assurance, does it not? It leads us, I think, to question, does my life and my love for one another, for others, look like verses 11 through 18? Now, perhaps we could check the box on my love doesn't look like Cain's love and say, well, I'm not there. Maybe we could work through that. But love, as we learned about last week, the costs. Love that looks like laying down your life for another, that looks like Jesus, that has all these actions attached to it because we have to love as the way Jesus loved us. Does that lead you to assurance? Do you leave thinking, man, I love like Jesus loved me? 
putting one's life under the microscope of verses 11 through 18 could reveal several shortfalls, to say the least. Could lead to the lack of assurance. Could almost produce the opposite effect than what I think John wrote the entire letter for. And often after challenging passages, John kind of flips the switch and he goes from really challenging stuff to then lavish assurance. I think he does something similar here, but look how he does this in in chapter 1, verse 8. Tough one. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and truth's not in us. He moves from that to chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, he, He goes from in your face, if you say this, you're a liar, to We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He does the same thing in chapter 2, verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And you think like, oh man, do I practice enough righteousness to say that I've been born of God? And it leaves these questions and doubts, and then he goes right to chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are, right? Now, children of God, and I think he does something similar. Verses 11 through 18, your love shouldn't be like Cain. Verses 16 through 18, your love should be like Jesus. All of us fall short. Now we're like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. And so he moves us to lavish assurance in verse 19. He says, we, by this, pointing back, we are, know that we're of the truth and we can reassure our hearts, but that might be a little bit shaky ground. So he says this, verse 20, for whenever our, hearts, our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. The assumption I think here from John is that there will be hearts that condemn. And as he's writing to those who share fellowship with him, which is a fellowship with the Father and with the Son, he's writing to those who are believers. So he is, he is coming with the assumption that believers, genuine believers who have a sincere faith, will face times when their hearts condemn them. John's audience of believers, those born of God who share in these fellowships, who are children of God right now, who he just said are of the truth under the microscope of love that we talked about in verses 11 through 18, will fall short of the divine standard that God says that we should have present in our lives. And that can lead to your heart to start speaking to you, saying you couldn't be born of God. If you're to love like Jesus, you're not doing it. You couldn't be born of God. Those born of God love this way. They, they lay down their lives for one another. Who have you laid down your life for? Verses 11 and 18 couldn't describe you. See how short you fall of that standard that God has put in front of you. Perhaps you've heard or felt or sensed something like that in your own heart the last few weeks. And this condemnation that creeps in comes from your heart. And, and what it doesn't do is it doesn't, give, it doesn't just give evidence, it gives a verdict. You're not that. That's condemnation. It doesn't just say you failed, it says you failed and you're a failure. Not you didn't do it the right way, you couldn't, you can't. It doesn't just say like, hey, try again, but it's over, you're finished, you don't match up. That's condemnation. And where do you turn in the midst of a heart that condemns? For, again, let's, let's be honest, very real failures to love in the same way Jesus loved us. Where do you turn in the midst of that kind of condemnation that comes from real failures before God? John says, verse 20, 
Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Where does John turn his readers when they have hearts that condemn? He turns them to God. He turns them to God. Not to any God, a very specific God, one who's greater than all, who knows all things, this omniscient one. And again, I wonder, like, man, John, that's a great detail to add in there. I wonder if it's helpful that, G- that God knows everything, especially when we're thinking about condemnation. God knows all of our sin. He can see all the way to the filthy bottom of all of our hearts. How is that helpful? It seems like it would go the other direction. So is it helpful that God knows all? And I think, yes, because of who God is. God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who God at his heart most truly is. He is one who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We want a God like that to know us fully and completely. That's good news for us. He is the one who we see throughout the scripture gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. And so if you see your sin and your lack of living up to the divine standard and you know that God sees it and he knows it too, then you're actually in a pretty safe place because he gives grace to those who recognize it and own up to it before him. That's the kind of God he is. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace perhaps to those we could say who are haunted by the condemnation coming from their heart. Because they see their need. They see how they've fallen short. And John says, you turn to God in this. He's the one who is greater than your heart and knows all things. He knows all of his children. He, know who, he knows who they are. He knows who they are right now. In chapter 3, verse 2, remember that it says, what we are now is, is children of God, but what we will be, like we, we're not there yet. We, it's not yet appeared. We're not there. We haven't arrived. In other words, there's a process. God knows we're imperfect. We haven't arrived yet. And, and right there in that moment, God still loves us. He still receives us as his own children. I mean, I, I've, I've had this phrase stuck in my my head and heart that is helpful from, from Tim Keller. He says that God sees us to the bottom and he loves us to the sky. What we will be has not yet appeared. We're not having arrived yet. We're still sinful. We're still broken. And yet, chapter 3, verse 1 is still true. There were children of God right now, right where we're at. And as one who knows all of this, every failure, every lacking of love to love us as children right now is incredible. Who loves us as 16 through 18 showed us so by giving himself for us. That's the kind of love that he describes as having for us. And is that kind of God, God is the one who can then, out of that, out of who he is, can, can minister to his children whose hearts condemn. He sees us to the bottom and still loves us to the sky. Yes, he is the judge who knows all the evidence that could be stacked against us, that truly could condemn us. But he also says, I'm the advocate who is pleading your cause before the heavenly throne. That's good news to those who are of the truth and yet have hearts that condemn. I think what John is doing here is similar to what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says in verse 3, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. 
maybe Paul's heart condemned him at times. And here's what he says. Small thing to be judged by you, the Corinthian church, any human court, even myself. I throw my own heart in there. It's a small thing. Why? Verse 4, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. But that doesn't even matter, he says. It's like, even if I was clear in my own heart, it wouldn't matter. Why? Because I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And Paul's heart doesn't condemn him here. Maybe it did at other times, but he says, I'm not acquitted. Why? Because I'm not the judge. It's the Lord who's the judge. And Paul was convinced that he had been justified by faith, that he was justified by the cross that he'd been telling the Corinthians about, saying, we need to boast of that thing. That's why I'm, I'm giving you the cross, Christ, and him crucified. He trusts so deeply in that that he can say, uh, even if you judge me or if I judge myself, I know that, that it's in God that I find my acquittal, that I find my justification. The Lord is judge. And, and John is saying to those who are of the truth and yet have hearts that condemn them, God's the judge, and, and he, as the judge, is greater than your hearts. Even if your hearts have nothing against you, like they're not putting something up as saying, here's evidence that you're, you're condemned, or if they're doing the other thing, they're giving you great assurance. He's saying, God's greater than all of those things. His word, his say, is the say that matters most. Not yours, not any human court. It's his say that matters most. One commentator says it this way, that all this suggests that if the heart is weighed down with the conviction Again, real conviction, conviction of wrongdoing, the place to turn is not farther inward, but outward and upward toward God. And that's where John turns all of his readers. If you have a heart that condemn, here's where you go with it. You go to God with it. He's greater than your heart. He knows all things. Amen. In other words, church, our, our assurance is not ultimately in ourself, in, in our in our way that we can convince our soul that we're of the truth. It's not in our feeling of assurance that's deep down in our hearts. Our assurance comes from God himself. Any other place where you find your assurance, it's going to be shaky ground. If, if you decide to find your assurance based upon some feeling inside your soul even, you, you are deciding to live in a place that could be full of fear, that could often be moving up and down because we know that we, what we will be has not yet appeared. We're not there yet. Our hearts can come in and can give us false assurance and our hearts can come in and give us false condemnation. And we need to say to both of those, let's let God's word say what we should think, do, feel. So do you have a troubled heart that condemns? Perhaps in light of all that we've done in 1 John so far, you might have thought several times, like, I thought John wrote for assurance, and yet it seems like we keep going through verse after verse, passage after passage, and he keeps challenging and challenging and challenging to the point where I think, am I even a Christian? Here's what you do with it. John tells us, you turn to God. You turn it over to God. If your heart condemns and you're turning to God for the first time, then you need to know that this God that you're turning to, perhaps maybe for the first time, is a God who is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you because Jesus came and laid down his life that you might live. But if you're already of the truth and your heart condemns you, cast yourself again upon God because he's greater than your heart and he knows all things. Our hearts can be uninformed. They can be misinformed. They can be dull to the things of God. They can be seared over. They can be distorted. They need to be spoken to. You think of the Psalms, they speak to their hearts all the time. Why are you in despair, soul? 
Hope in God. That's what you should be. You're saying something different, despair, and yet I'm saying that from the truth of God, you need to hope in God. That's what John is trying to give us here. Our hearts can be less merciful and less loving than God. And John says, we know you haven't arrived. If your heart condemns you, you need to turn it over to God. It's Reformation Day, 504 years since the Reformation, so I didn't plan that this was going to be Reformation Day, but we have Luther in here either way. Remember Luther when he's giving his, his great defense of his works at Worms. Luther, there he says, this great quote that you've probably heard, unless I'm convinced that they're asking him, they're asking him to, to denounce his works, like the things that he has written, renounce them. And he says, well, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. To go against conscience is neither, neither right nor safe. But I want us to notice one word in there, unless. Unless. There are times when, when conscience needs convincing by the Scripture, when hearts need to be made captive, not to subjective feeling, but to objective truth that comes from God and His Word. Luther wrote of this passage that we're studying today, verse 20, he wrote this. He says, conscience is one drop. The reconciled God is a sea of comfort. Think of that. He was so convinced that he'd been reconciled by the work of Jesus, that he was justified by his faith in Christ, that his conscience could have hounded him and said that you are condemned, you are a condemned man before God. And he would say, but I find a sea of comfort in God himself. What he says is more important than what I say. He doesn't give false assurance. The reconciled God. That's an actual thing that happens. You are reconciled to God by the work of Jesus Christ. That's not false assurance. That is looking to what God has done in Christ for you and by your union with him by faith, you can say the reconciled God is a sea of comfort. If there's no reconciliation, there's no comfort and no assurance to be found. It's the reconciled God that's a sea of comfort. Hearts are in need of a sea of comfort and that is only found in God himself. And that's where John keeps turning God is greater than our hearts. He knows all things. And so here's what we need to do. We need to take him at his verdict of our hearts. If we're not in Christ, his verdict of our hearts is condemned. You deserve his wrath, his punishment, his judgment. And he would say in that place, here's the verdict for you, repent and believe in Jesus who laid down his life so that you might live. But if you are of the truth, if you belong to the fellowship of Christ and those who are in Christ, here's what you need to do. Take his verdict. Your children right now. That means there's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. What's his verdict if we've trusted in him? Chapter 2, verse 12 of 1 John. Here's what he has said, just again, pouring out assurance. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You're not condemned. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know him not know us, is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children right now. That's what his word says. So do you feel condemned? Take God at his word. What he says matters more than what you say. He's the judge. He's greater than our hearts. He knows all. And so his say is more weighty. He has more evidence than you. He has all of it. And so his word trumps even what we say in our own hearts, matters more than all else. You want confidence when your heart condemns, turn to God. 
Look to God. Look to his word and who it says God is and what it promises to us. So here's what we need to do in our heart condemns. We entrust our hearts to God and we find our assurance in him. And if we do, if, if we find our assurance in God himself, if we turn our hearts that are condemning us over to him, that doesn't just end. It's, it's not the end of, the, the, of what's going on inside of us. It, John points to some actions that it's going to lead to. Assurance is one of those things that always comes with blessings. Right? It, assurance doesn't just stop. It is a blessing of itself, blessed assurance, right? But it doesn't stop there. It always leads to something. It leads to further actions. And here specifically, John's going to point to, it leads to asking. Verse 21, beloved, I love that. Again, it's like it just sets the tone a little bit more for us after 11 through 18. Again, I don't love like Jesus loved. How am I supposed to feel with all this and examining my life underneath the love that he's told us about? And he comes to us with these, these assuring words and even in the middle of the show throws in, beloved, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there can be confidence before God. I mean, think of it. Wonder at it that you, a sinner, deserving of God's judgment, can go before God in confidence because of what Jesus has done. Because he laid down his life in love, you can go before the Father, the God who is holy, 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 and you can go in confidence? Man. It's good news, and entrusting our hearts to God moves us from this felt condemnation before God to confidence before God. And that's quite the shift that we have as a gospel reality, that we can move from this felt condemnation to complete confidence in His presence, all because of the work of Jesus, because of what He has done. Jesus makes a way for those who come in Him to go before the Father with confidence. This is wrapped up so well in a couple different songs that Charles Wesley wrote. I'll put one up in front of us that I think just states it well. It's called Arise, My Soul Arise. He says in this song, my God is reconciled. Again, a reconciled God is a sea of comfort. We're, we're reconciled to God by the, by the work of his son. We, we know that though we don't deserve fellowship and closeness with God, that John says in light of what Jesus has done, this is 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, we have fellowship with God. So we're reconciled to God. Next, his, his pardoning voice I hear. Oh, if anyone has sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the propitiation for your sin. He made the payment that you should have made, but you couldn't have made. He turned away the Father's wrath upon you. You're, you're reconciled to him. You can hear his pardoning voice. He owns me for a child. Oh, chapter 3, verse 1 again, like he says, right now, this is what we are. We're children of God. And then he goes on to say, I can no longer fear. What does that lead to? With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. And the confidence of verse 21 is the same word that's used in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. A just great verse to write on our hearts. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. Here's the reality is that we need mercy. We need grace because we have times of need. We need help. And the Hebrew author writes and says, you need to draw near to the throne of grace then. And you can do that with confidence 
confidence in the great high priest and his work for you. And because of what he has done, you need to draw near with confidence. The confidence as you draw near matters. The great high priest and his work matters to your approach. Because where you're going to lack confidence, you're going to lack drawing near. Those will go together. Where your, your confidence is lacking, where your confidence before God is weak, so too will be your approach to God. So too will be prayer itself. I've been helped by John Stott in so many ways, but one of the things that he talked about in, is that he talked about his approach to God in prayer. And he said, it's, it seems silly, but I, I think of it as almost like this, uh, you know, there's a threshold, there's a kind of this door you got to enter in in this garden, so a stone threshold, and on the other side is the garden, and time with God, and it's sweet, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful, all those things, but i got to get through the threshold, and it's hard to get through sometimes, and he says that's where the, the battle so often for him really is, is at the threshold, it's not once you're in, you enjoy God in prayer, and, and ask him thing, receive thing, like all that happens, but man, the getting in is so often, and, and that's so summarizes prayer for me sometimes. Like The hardest part is, is just getting going, getting through the threshold, getting into that place. And one of those battles of the threshold is a battle of confidence. And where you lack confidence before God, you're going to lack going in. And John doesn't want that. He wants what the, the Hebrew author wants, confidently drawing near to God going before him with, with confidence. It's amazing. We, we would never want to claim that confidence for our own, like we should have this. No, but the scripture gives us a couple different places. It says, no, you, you can have this. You, you have this confidence. We, we didn't come up with that idea. God came up with it, and he said, you can draw near with confidence. It wasn't us. We didn't claim it. He gave it to us, and he says, then, then live in it. With confidence, you can now draw nigh, and you can ask. And where you ask, you can receive. Listen to verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. You know, threshold battles are, are fought most effectively with the scripture. We listen to the invitations that the scripture gives us. The invitations from God, the, the promises of God, the commands from God. He tells us, pray without ceasing. So we, we again, want to take God at his word and, and do what he says and listen to his promises that when we draw near, we can do it with confidence. We, we want to listen to these invitations. We fight those battles at the threshold with the, the scripture and clear promises and commands from God. And we need to take verses 21 and 22, and we need to put those verses to use in the battle of the threshold because we, we have confidence in God or we can have that confidence in God because we're listening to his word, taking him at his word for us and what we should be doing and how we should be living. And because we take him at his word, we can come with confidence. And when we come with confidence, he says, ask and, and you're going to receive. If you're struggling to pray, confidence could be a part and that's worked out by God's word and going to it and finding out what has he said about me? What has he commanded of me? What's he inviting me into? What has he promised? But verse 22 can make it sound like as if our obedience before God merits our receiving in prayer. Verse 22 can sound as if obedience merits receiving in prayer, which for many of us, if you're like me, might lead us to back to that place of lacking confidence. If my obedience before God 
somehow earns my receiving, then I'm not going to have a lot of confidence at times that I'm going to receive anything. Because obedience is not always perfect submission. But is that right? That our obedience merits receiving from God? Whatever we ask, that phrase that he uses here in verse 22, that whatever we ask, we receive, is very similar wording to what we found in Jesus, Jesus' own words in the book of John. So I have two of these Bible tassels, and one of them's been like almost permanently placed in, since 1 John in, in John 14, 15, 16, you know, around there. So we're going back there again. John 14, here are the words of Jesus. Whatever you ask, there it is again, in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask, here it is again, whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Chapter 16, verse 23 and 24. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have, not, you have asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Now, all those using very similar words and similar ideas, I think, help explain verse 22 and what's going on in verse 22. Listen again. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. John is not saying that somehow our obedience as believers merits receiving from God as if any one of us could rightfully earn anything from God at any point. He's not saying that. But he's saying, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him, that's like saying what Jesus told us in, in chapter 14, 15, and 16, that you're asking in my name. It's similar wording, that you're abiding in me, and when you're abiding in me, ask whatever you wish, and, and it will, you will receive. So because we keep commands and do what pleases, is like asking in Jesus' name, is like coming and keeping his word and abiding in him. So praying in Jesus' name means what? Lining up with him, prioritizing what he prioritizes. Submitting to what he wants, that not my will, but your will be done. That's, that's praying in Jesus' name. And, and what John is saying in verse 22 is that same kind of idea. That when you come and you ask, you're, you're asking in the right way. Not Your obedience doesn't merit receiving, but you're asking in the name of Jesus. And when you're asking in the name of Jesus, here's what God intends for us. That you receive in the name of Jesus. Obedience and doing what pleases him is the same as saying, your way matters more than my way, and I'm going to submit to your way, your Lord, your will be done, not my will. And so John Stott says, obedience is the indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. Obedience is the in indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. Prayer. So obedience doesn't merit receiving, but where we're not aiming to please God, we, we shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. Think of 1 Peter 3, 7. This is a tough one for, for husbands, right? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's what's implied. Husband, if you're not treating your wives in a godly way, if you're not treating them the way that God has said, even right here in an understanding way, showing honor to them as co-heirs, if you're not doing that, 
here's what's implied, then your prayers are hindered. In other words, again, obedience is condition. Not the meritorious cause, but it's, it's an indispensable condition. A level of obedience. A level of obedience isn't the condition. A heart of obedience is. You're saying, I'm, I'm, I want to treat this the right way because that's what God has said, because that's the right thing, that's good. Your heart of obedience is there. Again, it's not saying, well, okay, how well do I have to treat her? At what level? No. What's your heart like? Does your heart want to do what God wants? And then if there's a heart of obedience there, then we can know that man, God is going to let you receive so much that he has you asked for. This is how John defines Christians. First John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. What does he define Christians? Those who have this heart of obedience before God. By this we know that we've come to know him. We keep his commandments. And there's their heart is bent now to obeying God, loving God, doing what they can before God. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Christians are those, like John defines them as those who have this heart of obedience before God. So where you have that heart of obedience, and we have all sorts of confidence before God to ask and receive. Children of God are those who want to walk in the same way Jesus walked, who want to keep the commands of Jesus, walk in the light because he's in the light. They're like Paul. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, we make it our aim to please God. That's what Christians do. They make it their aim to please God. And so they'll do what God says. They'll obey him. And when God's children aim to please him and want to obey him, they can come with confidence and ask and expect to receive. And when they receive, you know what that does? If you've received in prayer, that doesn't lead you to stop praying. It leads to more prayer and more obedience. You want to do more. How can I take on more and please you more? That's what always happens. Perhaps you've heard of, of George Mueller. He's uh, uh, British and, and built uh, orphan houses in, in England. And he did it solely based on prayer. Like He didn't ask for funds. He, he took his request to God. He made his request known to God to care for these orphans and, and ended up his life. It's, it's pretty amazing. Thousands of orphans were cared for just by him asking God for all their needs, to fulfill all their needs. And here's what he says. The joy which answers to prayer give cannot be described, and the impetus which they afford to spiritual life is exceedingly great. The experience of this happiness I desire for all my Christian readers. Here's the if. Notice the if. If you believe indeed in the Lord Jesus for the salvation of your soul, if you walk uprightly and do not regard iniquity in your heart, if you continue to wait patiently and believingly upon God, then answers will surely be given to your prayers. I love all the ifs. Again, it's not as if you're earning something before God, but, but if you're going to follow that out, I, I, I want to walk uprightly. I, I don't want to regard iniquity. I don't want to walk in sin. I want to walk the same way Jesus walked. I want to make it my aim to please him. And so I'm going to ask this of him, and the things that aren't aiming to please him are going to fall away. But if you're asking things because you want to please him and walk in obedience, and you continue to, to work those things out, waiting patiently and believingly upon God, then here's what Mueller says is his experience, and he wants all readers to know, you can expect, surely, that answers will be given to your prayers. Notice the confidence that he has right alongside the ifs that he lists in that quote. 
Right alongside with the uncertainty of receiving are those ifs that he gives in prayer. And that's the type of assurance and the working out of assurance that John is talking about. That when we come before God and we make it our aim to please Him, we can expect to receive. That's for us too. And so one of the questions from verse 22 that we need to ask is, do we ask? Do we approach with confidence and do we ask things of God? Do we even ask Him things like, I have a heart that seems to be condemning me. Would you help me there? Can I receive some assurance in the midst of this? Help me out in my place of need. Do we ask him, I need to walk in obedience. Could you, you help me walk in obedience here where I seem to be taken down by sin over and over and over again? Can you help me walk in obedience? Do we ask? And we entrust our, our hearts to God and we let him lead and guide. We find our assurance in him. And when we find our assurance in him, we have confidence before him. And when we have confidence before him, we ask things of him, expecting to receive. That script that activity should be on repeat for, to those of the truth. Maybe our hearts condemn, we take it to God. When we take it to God, he's greater than our hearts, he knows all things. Our hearts now find that there's no condemnation in Christ because that's what God has said of us, not what we are convinced of, maybe most uh, deeply in our souls, in ourselves, but we look to him, we entrust him with it, and when we do that, we go before him with confidence, we ask again, we receive again, that never stops from himself, we want to obey him even more, please him even more, so we go and we do it all over again. It's on repeat for those in the truth. Assurance, then, is this active thing. We make it, then, to move us outward, to please God even more. When we find our assurance and confidence, we want to please him even more. But to remind his readers of what's pleasing to God, John continues to tell them, Here's what's pleasing to God. Look at verse 23. This is his commandment. The things that he wants, things that please him. That we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, this is not new material. You might remember in John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, Jesus had fed a crowd. And they come to him, and they ask him a really good question. Chapter 6, verse 25, when they found Jesus, again, this is after he had fed them. They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Here's the question they ask. Good question. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You ever wondered, what, what can I do to be doing the work of God? And he gives them a plain answer. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. He didn't give them a, a bunch of how-tos. He says, believe. Believe in the one he sent. Believe in Jesus. The, the heart of what God requires of people is belief. It's faith. The, the heart of command-keeping is believing. Not believing in general. That's not what John puts up here. doesn't say, I want you to have faith in general. We're not holding up faith, and great faith is this great thing. No, we hold up faith in Jesus. That's what he says. Believe in the name of Jesus. You need to have faith in the specific 
thing, specifically in the name of Jesus. John has already said, he's the word of life. He's the one who can forgive and cleanse your sin, the advocate before the Father. He's the righteous one, the propitiation for our sin, the Christ, the Son of God. That's who we're believing in. And if one doesn't believe in that Jesus, then there's no obedience, no matter how outwardly conformed the actions are. Because the heart of obedience is faith, belief. The heart of pleasing God is belief. The heart of command keeping is faith. Some of the people that John had written to knew those who had fallen away, who had left them, who joined uh, the Antichrist church that we've already talked about. And they denied Jesus as the Christ in some capacity. We don't know the specifics. John says, that's not going to do. That doesn't fit. There's no assurance there. There's no hope there. They're not doing what God wants because they're not believing in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It doesn't fit. You can't be in His commands and denying Him for who He is. Again, you, you could be outwardly conforming your actions in a certain way, but if you're missing the heart of actually trusting in Jesus as the Christ, you're not keeping any commands. The content of the confession of faith that we have matters. And the, the content is we believe in Jesus Christ, a specific name, specific person. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. I mean, that matters that we say that in the right way. We're not talking about faith in general as if that was enough. The people that had left John's readers, they had some sort of faith in some sort of Jesus, but not faith in the real Jesus but one who believes in the name of Jesus, the second part of verse 23 holds true. Here's what we need to be doing. Believe in the name of His Son, Jesus, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Always those are going together, trusting in Jesus and loving one another as He's commanded us. How do you do that? Well, you don't do it by verses 11 through 15, Cain-like. You do it instead by verses 16 through 18. You lay down your life for one another as Jesus laid down his life for us. John has been clear. If you believe in Jesus, that will always be shown, displayed, manifested in love for one another, other believers at least, which is just as he commanded, which takes us to verse 24. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. You think back in Jesus' life. How does Jesus abide in his Father? Well, he tells us. In John chapter 4, verse 34, it says, this is my food. This is my, what I eat and what I drink. In other words, this is what I constantly am giving myself to. This is what I'm constantly trying to do. I want to do the will of him who sent me. I want to accomplish it. My food is to do the Father's will. He abides by, by doing what the Father has told him to do. Or in John 15, 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I, how did he abide? I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Uh, abiding and obeying, they belong together. They, they coincide. They are always working together. One who abides, obeys. And one who obeys, <laughs> abides. But that doesn't mean that, that all abiding and obeying is perfect. We're not saying that. O obeying and abiding is imperfect, and where it's imperfect, sure, it could lead to doubts as it's possible for us to look at the love that we're to have for one another as one of the clearest evidences that we actually are of God and still fall short. And so what do we do then? Verse 24 continues. 
if verse 24 was leading us to greater doubts, greater concerns that would undermine the entire intent of the book in this passage, but John says, not pointing to a level of certain command keeping, but says, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Now John has said a lot about abiding so far. Chapter 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desire, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse 24 of chapter 2, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Chapter 3, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Chapter 3, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And here again in verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Verse 24 does not undermine any of the abiding talk that John has been speaking of so far, which seems to be linked to doing what God says, obeying Him, living out life, your belief in your life. But verse 24 doesn't come along and say, well, forget about all that. It actually supports it. It undergirds every bit of it. It explains all of it. Abide because the Holy Spirit abides in you. That's how you abide. None of the abiding that John has called for so far, and all those references that I just gave, and there were more, none of that abiding that John has called for is possible without the Holy Spirit abiding, without the Holy Spirit being given. It's by the Holy Spirit that abiding, and by Him abiding, that one walks in the same way that Jesus walked, that loves in the way that Jesus loved, that does the will of God, that doesn't keep on sinning, that loves brothers, those who are of the faith. It's by the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's abiding that makes all those others possible. So when those things are done from a heart that wants to please God, where the inward activity and desires and motivations match the outward activity, it's because of the Holy Spirit, John says. It's the Holy Spirit abiding. The Holy Spirit abiding in looks like all the ways that John has spoken of abiding so far, but now he's just saying, that's the Spirit in you. And by that Spirit in you, we know that we are from God, of God. So there's real evidence in the life of one that the Holy Spirit abides in. But notice again, the simplicity of verse 24. He doesn't point to the evidence itself as assurance. He points to the Spirit as assurance. Yes, the Spirit is going to be displayed in all the things that he's talked about abiding so far, but he doesn't point to all those things as the assurance itself. He points to the Spirit. He doesn't point to the manifestation of, of the gifts of the Spirit, some sort of special knowledge that the Spirit might give, some sort of utterance that you might have heard, or, or a still small voice that's standing on your shoulder saying to you, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. More of what he's saying in verse 24 is what Paul says when you're led by the Spirit. It's very similar to that kind of language. He doesn't point to any of those things, and I think there's some wisdom and genius in that. The lack of description of verse 24, where does it turn us to? turns us to God. It doesn't say here's these specific ways that the Holy Spirit testifies that you're abiding in God and He in you. He just says, the Spirit, He abides in you. But I wonder again, 
is this helpful? Does verse 24 help us taste the blessed assurance and experience heaven on earth? Does it get us to that place where we can now have confidence and run before God with confidence and ask and expect to receive? John doesn't seem too concerned. He doesn't finish out a thought as if he was lacking something. He doesn't go back and say, you know what, you know, I talked about the Holy Spirit abiding in you, and we know that He abides in us by the Spirit, and that wasn't good enough evidence, so let me show you these ten things that will be evidence in your life if the Holy Spirit abides. He doesn't do that. He's not concerned. In other words, I think John is resolved to let the Holy Spirit do what he does in the life of one who belongs to him. So in doubts and in questions and in lack of assurance, what does the Holy Spirit do in all of those that he abides in? He does what he always does. In one way or another, here's what the Spirit is always working toward, this, this movement toward God, this, this cry out toward the Father. That's what the Spirit instinctually does within believers. We cry out instinctually if we're His, if we have the Spirit abiding in us. What do we cry out? Abba, Father. That's what the Spirit does within believers. So John just leaves it and says, by this we know. There's certain assurance here. We know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He's given us. Because He's certain that the Spirit's going to do the work that the Spirit always does. The doubts and questions and the lack of assurance aren't to be feared. They're to be taken to God. And when they're taken to God by those who have the Spirit abiding in them, what does the Spirit do? What He always does. Cries out to His Father, to the Father, Abba, Father. If there's no cry, Abba, Father, then we can say, you're not His. And in that place, His will is, His work is for you to believe. If there is a cry out in your distress and lack of assurance that is moving you toward God, that is a cry of Abba, Father, if you have distress and you're crying out to Him, then here's what we could say. Blessed assurance. Jesus' mind. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. John's content to leave it at that and let the Holy Spirit do His work. And that's where we need to leave our hearts as well. Entrusting them to God. Finding our assurance in Him. Because we do that, we ask. And what do we point to to have this confidence? Like, we don't have evidences that are specifics. We have, oh, the Spirit abides in you. Because He abides in you, you belong to Him. If the Spirit abides in you, one of the things that He has given to keep on abiding is by keeping the Lord's Supper, by listening to the commands of Jesus and, and trying to obey them. And so as a, as a church, we get to take the Lord's Supper together. This is a meal for the family of God, for the children of God to, to do together. And it seems right on Reformation Day to, to be reminded by Luther as the Reformation stuck in our hearts so clearly that we can come to this table, that we're justified, that we're made right in the sight of God, not because of our obedience, not because of something we have done, but because of our faith in Jesus, because of what He has done, trusting in that. If that explains you, if that describes you, that you are counting on Jesus and who He is and His work to give you any sort of standing before God, if you have faith, in other words, this meal's for you, to be reminded of what Jesus has done and that you are justified by faith in Him. So come and take this meal in great confidence in hope that not only has He done everything that's necessary for you, but that He's going to come again and finally and fully finish it. If you're not His, here's the work of God. Believe. Don't take this meal. That's not the work of God yet. Believe in Jesus, and we can prepare you to take this meal next time.
Let's bow in preparation for this meal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know us to the bottom and you love us to the sky. And where would we be without that truth? We are frail, we are sinful. Our faith often wavers and Lord, we know that where it does, we have doubts. We feel condemned. And yet, Lord, we can look to you and know that you are sovereign, that our lack of faith and understanding, that our weakness never surprises you. You knew of it when you saved us, and you are determined to transform it, Lord, to transform our hearts, that we might not walk in doubt that we might not allow condemnation to creep in, but rather, Lord, that we would look to you and believe your word where you tell us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're thankful, God, that you've given us ways to be encouraged. You've given us a way to know if we are really trusting in you, Lord. We can look at the fruit of our lives and we can see, Lord, if obedience is there. And we know that that obedience, God, doesn't earn our salvation, but Father, we also know that it's a reflection of it. It's a reflection of a life lived in the name of Jesus. And I pray that we would be a church, Lord, who lives our lives in the name of Jesus, Father, that praying in his name would just be a natural outflow of a life lived in his name. And that, Lord, you would continue to teach us what it means to be faithful and to believe, that you would continue to reveal to us the weaknesses in our hearts that lead to condemnation and to doubt and to sin, ultimately. Lord, all of this depends on you. We depend on you. And yet, Father, we come to you. We come to a God who has loved us unconditionally, who has designed us to depend on him. Father, we find fullness, we find life when we do that, and we are grateful that you are such a good God, that you open your arms and that you invite us in constantly. Thank you for your love, Lord. Help us to love others as you have loved us. In Christ's name, amen.